0: 1st Samuel uh, 15 Children, we are still in the story uh, that focuses mainly on Saul. So you'll hear a good bit about Saul again this morning. King Saul, not Saul who became Paul, uh, but King Saul, the one whom David replaced. 1st Samuel 15. Samuel also said to Saul, "The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel." Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but indeed kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, Camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telame, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people, the rest of the people, with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy the rest. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it also grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night, So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, this bang? The lowing of the oxen, which I hear, what is it? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Yes, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, and they did so to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices As in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel Turn back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death has passed, right? But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces. Before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Amen. Flip over to Matthew 11 for our New Testament reading. Matthew chapter 11. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? Was it a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to receive it, he is indeed Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned towards you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors. Oh, I think I skipped there. I did, sorry. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> the Bible is not politically correct. The Bible is not Nice, And some passages display that more than others. First Samuel 15 is one of the passages probably near the top of that list, if you were to make one, that is not politically correct and not very nice. Maybe you've heard a wife or have experienced your own wife trying to shush you when you say something politically incorrect in public. Or parents, maybe you've done this to your children. because you know, children very often have no filter. They're just too honest in front of that aunt and that uncle once again. It's not that what is being said is wrong. It's that it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's inappropriate. And from our perspective, those things can truly be inappropriate and disrespectful. There's a time to say things. There's a time not to say things. However... That cannot be said of the Lord and his word. He and it are never inappropriate. He is never disrespectful. The scriptures always only ever tell the truth. And they do so in a way that God determined by his spirit, not men on their own choice. Children, you might imagine that God has no one to shh him, to shush him. The truth is he doesn't need anyone to tell him to be quiet because he's perfect in every way. And out of his perfections comes his holy word that we must submit to, whether we like it or not, whether it offends the world or not, whether it offends the church or not. For remember the words of Christ in the gospel of Mark. We just heard something like it in Matthew 11. But in Mark, he says this, whoever is ashamed of me, And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Now, before we get further into the text of first Samuel 15, I want to explain to you who the Amalekites and the Kenites are. Maybe when you read through. Uh, in your daily Bible reading or something like that, you kind of come across these various tribes that are mentioned, and it's hard to remember who they are. It's hard to remember their history. But normally, there is uh, references to them in previous passages where you can go back and learn about who they are and what the events that are being referred to regarding. The Amalekites, who are they? They are the people who ambushed the people of God between the exodus from Egypt and their arrival at Mount Sinai. That's the area where they live. They live between Egypt and Mount Sinai, between Egypt and Canaan. It takes place in Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. If you want to write that down and read it later. The fact that the Lord would not forget the sin of Amalek, the people of the Amalekites, is repeated a few times in the scriptures leading up to 1 Samuel 15. Give you a little more context for that. Children, maybe you remember this particular battle in Exodus 17, where Moses' hands were supported by Aaron and her, while Joshua went down and fought against the Amalekites. The good guys won. And there's also something else important that happens in Exodus 17 there. You're given a name of God. We were talking about this in adult Sunday school. The name of God that's given there is Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my banner. And then we just sang a hymn about the banner of the Lord. That is where that's recorded, Exodus 17. Another interesting note about the Amalekites. Do you remember Haman in the book of Esther? He is a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite. Who are the Kenites? They are the family of Jethro, who, remember, is Moses' father-in-law. Midian is another place to where Jethro is referred to as being from, but it seems that Midian is a place while the Kenites are a family. So the Kenites lived, at least some of them, in Midian. And they were always near or in the land of Canaan. At this point, for some reason, they had begun to live among the Amalekites. And what Saul does, or Samuel does, excuse me, Saul, what Saul does is he warns them in a way like Lot was warned. Get out of this place, the judgment of God is coming. Right? He received, or they received the warning of what was about to happen. Now, we have a description of these two groups, Amalekites, enemies, Kenites, friends, Let's consider the first politically incorrect point of our passage. And that point is the judgment that God pronounces on the Amalekites. Yes, Saul fails to carry it out, but it is the pronouncement of the Lord. And as you saw at the end of the text, we'll come back to in just a bit. It it eventually does happen to the full. This is judgment to the full. Now, the Bible doesn't always use judgment in a negative or punishing sense, but this is one of the ones where it does. Did you notice? Children, I don't know if you caught this, but all of the people and the livestock are to be put to death, even the women and the children. Now, why is this the case? All right, this is one of those passages that... People who are looking for a reason to reject Christianity or looking for a reason to leave Christianity will go to and say, look at how monstrous God is in the Bible. Why does he do this? Because there are times when corporate or national judgment is carried out regardless of potential exceptions. That means even if there were some decent people among the Amalekites, God had determined long before this that he would destroy them all. Were all the men, women, and children present during the time back in the Exodus? No, probably none of them. Because you've gone through at least two generations, because remember that was said when Moses was alive. And not only is Moses dead and gone, but Joshua is dead and gone. We're past the days of Joshua and far past the days of Moses, yet God had not forgotten. God judges the Amalekites because the Amalekites had committed grievous sin against the Lord and his people, regardless of whether they were all guilty in the same way. Quite frankly, this is the way that covenant judgments can be carried out. God doesn't do this every time a people sin against him. They're not always done in this way, but sometimes they are. The possibility is always there if the Lord chooses. The reason the children had to be put to death, the reason the women had to be put to death is because they were Amalekites. They were part of that people, and God desired to wipe out that people with no exceptions. Now, we affirm this truth about children being included as part of the church, but it's a fact in the scriptures revealed and something we understand in nature as well. God always treats the children of a people as part of the people. He just does. Therefore, logically, if he wipes out a people, there is no age requirement. All must perish. Now, what's ironic about this discussion and having to explain the, uh, the total destruction of the Amalekites is that no one has an issue. No one complains that the Kenites receive mercy. We don't have any questions about that, right? We all deserve mercy, don't we? No, we don't. No one complains about grace working indiscriminately, but we all complain about wrath working indiscriminately. Now, to kind of step aside for just a moment, this would be quite the policy to apply to those coming into our own country that we know want to ruin us or have ruined us in the past. See, the Lord carries out judgment based on something that was done likely before any of these people were ever born. Based on this text, we could say that it would not be wrong to treat present and future generations with skepticism based on the way previous generations of those same people behaved. It is evidently not the godly thing to do to extend mercy indiscriminately when it comes to those encroaching on the church and lands where his church is honored. Now, what Saul does in 1 Samuel 15, is he commits his third grievous offense, he, like Peter, has a threefold denial of the Lord. The first sin, do you remember it? Children, this is a helpful way to remember the stories of the Bible, where you can remember the high points in these people's lives. The first sin, certainly not a high point, a low point, A point nonetheless. The first sin was when Saul refused to wait on Samuel for the sacrifices. Remember that? That had to do with God's worship. The second sin was what we covered recently. The whole scene with Jonathan, Saul's son, and seeking to put him to death after Saul had exasperated the Lord's army. Remember, he made them fast and he shouldn't have and all those things. And then he does that crazy thing with with Jonathan at the end. The first, remember, had to do with God's worship, and the second had to do with God's people kind of moving out a layer. But the third sin is here in our text today, and it has to do with God's enemies. Saul disobeys the Lord and is confronted by Samuel, similar to the other events. Now, this is actually how sin works. It works in circle, concentric circles like this. We have a sin in our lives. We have a sin in our, uh, our own personal walk with the Lord. Or we can say we have a sin in our worship. Well, it won't be before long before that begins to affect how we relate to the people closest to us. Right? Our families, our friends, our, our church members. And then beyond that, it won't be long before it affects how we relate to those in the world. Right? That concentric circle idea. Sin starts here, expands out. And that's what it had done in Saul's life. And it's shown in these three grievous sins. Sin is a progression like this. But what, is, what does Saul do? He pulls an atom. He does what he's been doing. He blames it on someone else. He blames it on the people. Did you notice that as we read through 1 Samuel 15? It took him until the very end. He says, they have brought, the people have spared and he even blames his fear of the people uh, for this act. There is no actual admission of guilt. There is no godly grief, to use the language of Paul in Corinthians. Just worldly grief. Samuel confronting Saul should remind us of the Lord Jesus confronting the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Because Christ did the same thing, but better than what Samuel was seeking to do, Christ is able to penetrate fully to the heart because that is where obedience starts. You see, if disobedience starts in that intimate worship of God, your own personal relationship for the Lord, then uh, disobedience starts there and obedience starts there. Saul wanted to justify his actions based on the need to worship. What a preposterous thing. He had sin in his heart, and he sinned against the Lord. He did not respond as one who was in need of the great physician, but as one who would instruct him instead, indeed, like the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Now, the deceptive nature of sin jumps off the page here. Because Saul's uh, life, especially scenes like this, There are examples of what we might call incomplete obedience. Incomplete obedience. This can be used to prove an important point that I try to make to you often. There is a difference in pretending to obey while holding on to sin. And then on the other hand, actually obeying while admitting that your obedience is imperfect. You see the distinction. I'm going to explain it, but I want you to have it in your mind before I break out on it. There is a difference in pretending to obey while knowingly holding on to sin. That's one. What is it different than actually obeying and humbly admitting that your obedience is imperfect? You see, one is quite hypocritical. And the other one is in faith, trusting in the mercy of God. So many Christians, maybe even you here this morning, are uncomfortable saying that you obey the Lord because you have a twisted view of what it means to obey imperfectly. The fact is you cannot do anything but obey imperfectly. And we call that the process of sanctification. Obeying hypocritically, though, is no obedience at all. Those two are different. If you are not intentionally disobeying the Lord in your acts of obedience, then you are obeying the Lord. It's that simple. If you are intentionally disobeying the Lord in your acts of obedience, you are disobeying the Lord. Children, your parents teach you this lesson about having a good attitude and doing things willingly. When they ask you to do them around the house, they know you're not going to do them perfectly, but they ask you to do them. Nonetheless, God relates to us very similarly, and he calls it obedience. Back to what I meant with the deceptive nature of sin. Saul partially obeyed by only getting rid of everything that was despised and worthless. Let's put a spiritual twist. On this, or allegorical, if you want to call it that, Saul only took part took care of the parts that nobody really wanted anyway. He only took care of the parts that no one really liked, the worst of the worst. He took care of that. Now the truth is, it 's not really difficult to obey in this fashion, is it? it's not all that difficult to avoid the big things. you're probably not inclined. To go out and murder someone. What's difficult is avoiding the things that our hearts treasure. And because we still have to battle with deception in our hearts, this can be tricky. I want to try and help. The big things you don't do. What we might call the easy obediences. Like murder, adultery, stealing, etc. The things that would cause you tremendous embarrassment and worldly consequences. You don't really have a hard time avoiding those things. But the, thin, but the sins that you participate in that might please others, the ones you dare anyone to say a word to you about, like gossip, laziness, dressing immodestly, Your temper, spending too much money, not honoring the Lord's Day, refusing to discipline and nurture your children, etc., etc. These are examples of things that don't necessarily bring the conviction you might experience if you did one of those big things. Yet, if we're honest, when it's just you and the Lord, Are those not the things that are bleeding and lowing in the Lord's ears? Are those not the things that he says, look over there. What about that? Look how I have obeyed you here. At this point, you might say to the Lord. But then the Lord by his word comes and puts his finger there on this deceptive sin. Then. You feel conviction. What's next? Maybe you blame others. I just can't control myself when the girls start those funny conversations. You have no idea how hard my job is. It's their fault if they don't have any self-control. They make me so angry. I really need that thing. It's on sale after all. Morning worship is more important than evening worship anyway, don't you know? My children make me so tired. Sometimes I just need a minute with my phone. Friends, those are Saul-like behaviors. They are responses that you are tempted to make, but you don't have to. The Lord, in his mercy, is pointing out the sin again and again and again. And the reason you're provoked when someone mentions it is because it's an open wound. So I ask you, what, O friend of Christ, will you do with it? I wonder if we get glazed over when we come to Samuel's poetic response near the end of the chapter. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. To say that obedience is better than sacrifice does not mean that you can obey the Lord by ignoring his worship. That's not the point Samuel is trying to make. Sacrifice is worship. That's what he's talking about because Saul used that as an excuse. It does not mean some weird concept of, I'll just be out here keeping the commands of God while y'all are at church. This is a specific point for a specific situation with Saul. He is pointing out that Saul used sacrifice or worship as an excuse to disobey the Lord. And when you put it like that, you can say obedience is better than sacrifice. But the broader meaning is this refusing to obey and heed the Lord will not go overlooked when you come to make your sacrifice of praise before him. You see, Saul was imagining that he did not, that God did not really care how he lived so long as he made the proper worship. The correct response is not to start obeying and stop worshiping. That's not what the text means. You see, Saul is treating the Lord's worship like a genie in a bottle. Children, have you ever seen such on a movie or read about it in a book where uh, someone rubs a lamp or something like that and a genie comes out and you get some wishes. Saul is treating the Lord's worship like this or what the new King James calls witchcraft. His behavior is sinful and idolatrous. He goes to the Lord to appease his own conscience while continuing in his half-hearted obedience. Thinking that you will receive from the Lord the good that he desires to give you, while there remains those sins that bleat and low in his ears is witchcraft, iniquity, and idolatry. I wonder if we would think the same about our sins if we called them those names. And as I said earlier, this is strike three. Samuel says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord he also has rejected you from being king. Applied to us. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from receiving all that he has for you, if you were not to reject his word. Now, rejecting his word is not a Christian imperfectly loving the word of the Lord. That's that's not what is happening. Rejecting the word of the Lord is high handed disobedience hearing the commands and finding ways around really keeping it all the while claiming you are keeping it if you are dealing with the christian life and walking as paul describes in romans 7 that is you're wanting to obey the law of the lord more perfectly but you keep falling short and yet in your falling short you proclaim the goodness of the lord's mercy And your delight in his law. That is not rejecting the word of the Lord. That is obeying, heeding, and cherishing the Lord and his word. And using it to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Newsflash. In this life, you will always have to fight sin. Always. It never ends. Do not be surprised or overly downcast that sin is present. I would invite you, indeed command you as the Lord does, come to the Savior again of whom we heard in our reading in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Hear those words again. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't that sound wonderful? It's the best news that you'll ever hear and it's 100% true. But if you can read and hear those words and somehow find a way to wiggle yourself out of coming to Christ, Lord's day after Lord's day, Every other day in between, you simply need to return to the Christian ABCs because you've lost the plot. Our passage closes with Samuel doing what Saul should have done. Remember the previous chapter? We saw Jonathan doing what Saul should have done. Now we see Samuel doing what Saul should have done. He hacks Agag, king of the Amalekites, to pieces. Children, he cut him up like your dad might cut up a piece of chicken for you. Completing the obedience where Saul had left off. The text even says he does this before the Lord, which is the place where all obedience and disobedience is performed. Now, kind of to answer an objection that some may have to Samuel's act here, this is not a violation of the sixth commandment. Remember the Sixth Commandment, children? Thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. Why is it not a violation of the Sixth Commandment? Because this was an act of war. The Bible does not outlaw just war. They were at war with the Amalekites. They were to take them out fully. The Bible does not outlaw just killing. It only outlaws unjust killing or what we today call Murder. This is not Samuel taking the place of a civil magistrate and carrying out the death penalty. He is finishing the battle that Saul had refused to complete. Now remember last time I highlighted at the end of chapter 14 that there's this, this summary of Saul's time as king. And if we were to give a summary of Saul's time as king, we probably wouldn't write it the way the end of chapter 14 does. But one of those verses said this, Saul gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. I bring this up because this is the sense with which you need to leave chapter 15. The Lord worked among and through his people, even Saul, to bring about deliverance. The Lord ordains even sin to deliver his people from their enemies. This is a profound mystery, but the Bible tells us two things without contradiction. Saul defeated the Amalekites, and at the same time, he took strike three. The psalm we read earlier, Psalm 83, it had the cries of the Lord's people to take care of his and their enemies. Remember I told you there was a relation between these texts. We know this is part of what the Lord is doing for his people in all ages. He is taking care of his and our enemies. And yet we are required to pray for these things to be. We're required to pray like Psalm 83 for God to act on his enemies. I plead with you, though, to not forget that the Lord actually does take care of his enemies. The Lord Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. The same one who offers abundant mercy, as we read in Matthew 11. The book of Revelation tells us that he has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and he rides a white horse with the blood of his enemies covering his robe. He will fill their faces with shame. He will put them to shame and they will perish forever. You see, we live in a world where there are plenty of Saul's trying to get in the way. And painfully, we must admit we behave like Saul far too often. But by God's grace, let's pray that we would be more like Samuel. That we would have more Samuels in our midst. Being those who finish obedience in the various battles of life no matter how politically incorrect those obediences may be. Amen. Let's pray.